has to do with work, idleness. Did you ever hear this as a kid? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. I heard that a lot. I don't know who that's attributed to. One source that I found said it was anonymous, so we'll say it's anonymous. Another anonymous quote, idleness is the nest in which mischief lays its eggs. Did you ever read Dennis the Menace? William Gurnall, a Puritan writer, said, an idle man does none good and himself most harm. Charles Spurgeon said, some temptations come to the industrious, but all temptations attack the idle. I-D-L-E. So we're clear. Thomas Brooks, another Puritan, an idle life and a holy heart is a contradiction. Thomas Watson said, idleness tempts the devil to tempt. Really all getting at many of the same things. Final hurdle that Paul comes to in this le- in this letter to the Thessalonians, his second to them since he's been chased off, really probably two of the earliest letters in the New Testament, along with Galatians and James, uh, those other letters written very early on. Paul has addressed several issues. One is the persecution that this church is under. It continued after Paul was chased off. If you read in Acts 17, there was great persecution that chased him off. And Paul is addressing them about that and encouraging them to persevere, not to give up, because God will get glory as they do. But there's a second hurdle that they needed to face and overcome by God's grace, and that was the issue of false teaching about the end times. Someone had come in and said, the day of the Lord has come. And they were becoming discouraged. They were distraught that they had missed something. And Paul repeated many of the things that he had taught them and reminded them, put in their minds again, what still had to come, that they had not missed the day of the Lord, that it was not upon them, that these were false teachers. They needed to reject that and stick to the truth. But this final one really is definitely coming from within the church. It's the problem of idleness. The title tonight is The Issue with Idleness. There were some, evidently, in the church who refused to work. And yet, perhaps within the church, there were others who were supporting them, letting them continue in their sin, letting them eat, though they refused to labor. And this isn't talking about those who had some injury or those who really were in the the state of life or the circumstances of life where they could not do any labor. No, this is those, it's very clear that they would not do any labor. Perhaps this was some among the Greeks. This is a Greek city. There have always been perversions of what God says about work, but in this society as well, the Greeks detested manual labor. You can read some of the Greek philosophers, including Aristotle, who despised manual labor. Perhaps there were those who were in this situation even before they had become Christians, and it was kind of a a temptation to them to go back to that way of thinking. Perhaps, as was also common in this culture, the the patronage that could go on, where someone could become a patron, which was a very accepted practice, and they would offer political support and 
someone would really support another person who was supporting them in the public square, kind of in exchange for some favor or free meal, certainly protection, certainly political interests. Perhaps this was an abuse of that system that was common in Rome. Perhaps there were some in this church who cast themselves as too spiritual to work, that manual labor was below them, not in the sense of the Greek philosophers, but if you read like the reformers, those who were monks, the reformers often targeted the monks with a passage like this and really went after those who did not, they disdained to work because they thought themselves too spiritual. They were above the common man. Maybe they saw themselves as needing to be the ones who met spiritual needs that they themselves decided were not being adequately met. And they were kind of casting themselves as a self-proclaimed elder. It's not clear exactly what it is, but you can kind of get a sense of why this might seem reasonable to do or to allow it to continue. Whatever the case, they had the capacity to work, and yet they would not. And instead, they were busying themselves about other people's business, maybe at the marketplace, maybe in their homes. And it was bringing discouragement and disrepute upon this church. And Paul writes to say idleness needs corrected because idleness brings disorder, not just to one person, but to the whole body. Idleness brings disorder within the church. It's not just a self-contained problem. God intended that ordinarily each person would work for his own living. God created us to be productive, to contribute to the welfare of our society and our community. Adam was put into the garden to tend and to keep it. He was working before there was even sin. After sin, there was sweat and uh, toil about his work. There was futility about his work because the ground was cursed because of his sin. But it wasn't the work itself that was bad. That was good. God himself worked six days and rested on his seventh. On the seventh, God commands work. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, and the seventh you shall rest. God commands us, God expects us to produce and to contribute, not to live for ourselves or for our own interests. And before we get to the passage, it might be helpful for us to think just. Where do I fit into all this? One writer said this, it should be noted that there are a variety of ways of working. Whoever helps society in general through his work, through bringing up a family, through the administration of public or private affairs by counseling or teaching or working in any other way is not to be numbered with the idle. Paul censures those lazy drones who lived off other people's labor while they contributed nothing to help the human race. And that's actually John Calvin. And he is one of those who turns his attention then to those monks who were not doing this. So as you think about how you contribute, maybe it's not by earning a wage, but I'd ought to encourage each one of us, especially you moms, that while you might not be making money to eat, you are, you could say, nurturing the building blocks of society. You're caring for the home. That's what God has given you to do. 
That's far from idleness. That's a great service, a great ministry in the eyes of God. But for all of us, we must be contributors rather than merely consumers. And especially God's people in the church, we must work. Because to be idle is to walk in a disorderly way and to bring disorder into the family of God. Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll start at the beginning, but our text for this evening will begin in verse 6. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's the word of the Lord. May he help us to heed it. You see there in verses 14 and 15, he refers to elements of a church discipline process. If anyone does not obey our instruction, take note of that person and do not associate with him. Don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I do believe that belongs with the paragraph starting in chapter 6, but we'll uh, kind of set that aside for probably next week, Lord willing, as a, a little bit of a separate topic. And you see him referred to it as well in verse 6, that you keep away from every brother. I do want to answer those questions, but that's a, we'll leave that for another time. Today, I'd like to consider the issue with idleness. And how does Paul address it? How does idleness bring disorder to the church? Well, it's unbiblical in its thinking, is really Paul's premise here. And Paul shows us how, and you could say four ways. Idleness, first, is contrary to the leading of Christ. Look in verse 6. He gives a command in the name of the Lord, the Master, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the church. And 
the Lord of the church is leading his church away from this practice. This is contrary to the leading of Christ. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, or with his authority, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. You see, from the very beginning, Paul's point is not just to crush this person or to to be mean to him. It's actually to correct him. He wants this person to amend his ways and to, to change, to follow Christ. But he's not following Christ, so he needs to ramp up the pressure. So how does he do this? Paul gives a command that they must obey. The word command is really placed right at the front of the sentence. It's emphasized here. And it's clear what Paul means. He's not just exhorting them or encouraging them. He's not suggesting to them they have to obey. And it's not often that Paul uses this kind of language, but he's using all of the authority God has given him to call them to obedience. And he's saying it with such force, not because he says so, but because Christ does. Paul's not making this up. He's claiming Christ's authority here. And what is he addressing this word and then uh, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, you may see in your margin, who walks disorderly. It's the word for walking, like the disciples who walked around with their rabbi. Their way of life is disorderly. It's undisciplined. It's unruly. And how we understand this word really shapes how we understand what Paul is talking about. I keep using this term idleness because I, I do believe Paul sees several problems. Um, he, he addresses not working, being, being idle. He also addresses being a busybody, being active in a certain way, but about the wrong things. But I do believe idleness here is the, the culprit. Their life as a whole is disorderly because they won't work. They are busy bodies because they won't work. And the solution is go work and provide for yourself. Stop loafing off others. You need to fix idleness if you're going to fix the disorder. So walking disorderly, you could say, is kind of using it equivalent to idleness, but all that idleness produces in a person. Idleness really is a, 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 a wise phrase. Idleness really is the devil's workshop. Idleness is the nest in which mischief lays its eggs. When they refuse to work as God has given the, them the ability and the capacity to do, there's all sorts of other sins that are springing up from their lives. So Paul gives them a command, and it really is a command for the church. We command you, brethren. He's giving it in love. He's giving it in Christ's name as Christ is leading his church. This isn't a command that he's giving to enforce on an outsider. You see, we hear that there's some among you. Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. The church really must discipline its own members. Of course, wisdom shows that this is what society should do. This is how it's nature that teaches us that. But the church, most of all, should be living in a way that instructs the culture. But you see how this really brings disrepute on the church because there are those outside the church who see this and they are better than that. 
Paul's prescribing how the church should deal with itself and get its own house in order. So we should be careful about being being harsh in our spirit towards those outside the church about this, certainly towards those inside the church as well. But when we see someone refusing to work, but we should, I'm trying to chart a middle road here, not being harsh about this. Well, I work, get off your rear and, and go do a job. No, we should be harsh about this, but we should be wise that we're not contributing to someone else's laziness and their disorder. And what is the command that Paul gives? It, it is a command to discipline. We command you, brethren, in the church, in the name of Christ, it's they must obey God, that you keep away, or you, you may have in the margin, avoid every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Like I said, we will consider the, the church discipline as an idea more fully another time. But what, what Paul is doing is he's ratcheting up the pressure. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the previous letter, a few weeks, maybe a few months before, Paul hints at this and he seems to have a concern. We kind of read between the lines, if we can do that a little bit. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11 He's commending them for their love, telling them to keep pushing forward in that. And he's saying, make it your ambition, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. So you hear, you see by this statement, not only did he address it in the first letter, but he knew he had addressed it when he was there. And why did he address it when he was there? This doesn't appear in every letter. Perhaps this was an issue he faced in every city, but he certainly saw this in Thessalonica. And he made a conscious decision not to take any support from this church so that he could set them an example. But he's referred to it. He's given them instruction on this, and it's gone unheeded. They've rejected his example. That has gone on heated, and now Paul is turning up the temperature. But what does this mean, this word avoid? It probably isn't talking about excommunicating them, sending them out of the church and treating them as an unbeliever. You see that he does call them a brother. Keep away from every brother. But what does he mean? What is pressure by avoiding? What does that look like? Well, he's probably telling them something like deny them participation in the Lord's table. Make them realize if they will not realize and admit themselves that they are walking disorderly. If there are, if there is a love feast, some have suggested this, if there's a meal that they're all sharing, you probably need to tell that person that they're not allowed to participate because that would enable them. There needs to be pressure from the group now because they won't heed a suggestion Paul wants to draw attention to this sin so that this person, these people, will turn from it. But notice, he's telling the church to do this themselves. This is an act that the church itself has to take to cleanse itself, to mature itself, for itself to build up in love. Could Paul theoretically go back and do it himself and, you know, like Nehemiah did, start pulling people's hair out? Who knows? Maybe he could have intervened directly. But if this church takes the step of obedience itself, 
That's a, a step towards maturity, isn't it? A demonstration of maturity. Well, what this is really is Christ governing his body, isn't it? This is Christ nurturing the church, disciplining the church, directing the church with how to deal with a problem to purge it from its mists. This is how God, Christ, has designed it to work. So this is a command to discipline the idle, address the unruly, unruly rather, someone who's out of line. This Greek word is sometimes used with, with military recruits who are disorderly under the commands of their of their commanding officer. They're given a directive and they're not doing it. They're, they're out of line. They're not in step with what they should be and what's expected of them. And as we think about this, how do we, how do we apply this? Well, maybe you're not in this situation. Maybe you are, maybe the Lord's uncovering something, but for all of us, we need to make sure that we're thinking in biblical terms about what sin is. That's part of what Paul is doing for this church. This is a sin, Paul is saying, and you need to treat it like a sin. And there's a lesson there for us. If we're, if we're taking the world's identification of a problem, well, this disorder is this thing, and we're calling it something other than what God clearly calls it. Take drunkenness, for example. And this isn't a sermon about drunkenness, but if we're going to call it a medical condition, Scripture is very clear about the sin of drunkenness. What I'm saying by way of application is we need to take the Bible's categories and let that shape our thinking. What does the Bible call this? A refusal to work when we have the opportunity and the capacity to do so? The Bible calls that sin. And we should be gracious when we tell the truth to people, but we must tell the truth. The Bible is clear, and we need to adapt our minds to it. The world is always trying to, to press us into its mold, right? Did you ever play with Play-Doh, and you had, oh, there's this really cool little plastic thing, and I'm going to press the Play-Doh into it, and then I pull it out, and then it looks like that, and that's really cool? The world is trying to press us into its mold, and that includes with terminology, and how to think about sin. Do you think the devil has a vested interest in Christians redefining how they think about sin, making it an acceptable moral category? You better believe he does. Certainly in this, with idleness, but also with other sins as well. We need to take our cues from Scripture. Let our thinking be shaped and molded by Scripture about what sin is and what virtue is, what's good and right and wholesome. Because here, idleness within the church is a problem. It's bringing disorder to the whole body. First, by being contrary to Christ. It's contrary to how Christ wants the church to look. So he leads his people away from freeloading. Limit fellowship here. Teach them to mend their ways. But then Paul gives two reasons why this is. And he points first to his own example and then to his own teaching while he was there. There was an example that he and his coworkers set. And then there's the principles from scripture to work from your own living, really from scripture and from nature. 
So next, idleness brings disorder because it's really contrary to the example of the apostles. And if you persist in this, you're rejecting the examples that the apostles set. He says in verse 7, something they should have known, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. This team exemplified hard work, and there was an accountability that this church had to imitate their example. You ought to. Paul and Silas and Timothy came to Thessalonica and for whatever reason, consciously made a decision to set an example for this church in this way. And they knew how Paul had acted. And he did that on purpose to back up his teaching, to make his sermon really come to life here. And it did. What was his example? You could call it self-sacrificial hard work. And it's, it's just self-evident, self-vindicating. It testifies of itself. We did not act in an undisciplined manner. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying or freely, for free. But with, what did he do positively instead? Labor and hardship, Paul calls it. Paul knew hardship, didn't he? We kept working night and day. Probably didn't have electricity in that tent market so that we would not be a burden to you. This team did act in a disciplined way. Paul was a man of great personal discipline. He denied himself. He worked hard. And as a rule, they didn't eat for free. This probably isn't referring to an absolute thing. Hey, do you want to come over for dinner? No. Take 20 bucks. No, please just come. No, 20 bucks. That's probably not what he's saying. But when you read Acts 17, when the mob came, whose house did they go to? They went to Jason's house looking for Paul. Paul was staying with Jason. And Paul probably wasn't staying there for free. He was probably working to support himself while he was there. They must have paid for their own food as an example. Instead of living freely, they worked hard at all hours of the day and the night to support themselves and at great cost and great difficulty to themselves so they wouldn't burden anyone. What's even more interesting about this is that Paul did receive a gift from another church while he was in Thessalonica. If you just glance over at Philippians 4.16, he's writing to a different church in a different city later in his travels. Philippians 4.15, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. I have received everything. Thank you for sending Epaphroditus, he says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This was a generous church. They were looking for a missionary to support. They knew about Paul. They knew about his ministry to them, and they, they sent to Thessalonica a gift 
And he's thankful for that. No doubt that relieved some of that pressure and that hardship. And he would take that from them, but he wouldn't take it from this church because of an example he intended to set. But he does want to be careful lest the church misunderstand and you know, who knows where they are in, in calling elders, being set up with leaders. Could they expect that someone would do this again? Paul's careful about that. Verse 9, not because we do not have a right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. He didn't work for his living and not take support from them because Scripture forbid him to do that because it doesn't. In fact, Scripture is clear that those who do the work of the ministry should receive payment for their labor. Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. He uses the principle from the law, do not muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. Elsewhere, he, he asks, a soldier doesn't serve at his own expense, does he? You wouldn't expect a farmer to or it's right for a farmer to partake of the crop that he grows, isn't it? But Paul purposely laid aside that right in order to teach a lived lesson to this church, one which, in the wisdom apparently that God gave him, he, he foresaw would be one that was necessary. He anticipated this. And he set an example that he could point to. So this was his example, but there was also teaching that came with this. Paul talked about this evidently on more than one occasion. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. It's not just what he did. It's also what he said that he's pointing to. And if you're not going to work when you can and you should, you're not just contradicting an example. You're contradicting the apostles teaching too. This team taught productivity, and it's something they should have remembered. When we were with you, we were in the habit of giving you this order. And what was it? It really is a practice that should have starved into non-existence, right? The principle is this. The sense of what he's saying is, if someone is unwilling to work, do not feed him. It's not a command to the one who's not working. It's actually to the ones who may be supporting him. And this is where we get the idea of why I keep emphasizing that it's those who will not work. The word, if anyone is not willing to work, if he does not desire, if his wish is to not work. That's clear that that's the category Paul is talking about. But he's actually addressing the healthy majority who are working, who are in line, who are obeying and doing what they should do. If anyone is choosing not to work, make sure he pays for it. Make sure he doesn't eat at your hand, is the sense. Proverbs 16.26 says, A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. When he gets hungry enough, he'll go get a job, is what Paul is saying. It should be a kind of self-regulating problem, Right? There was a time soon after Jen and I were married when we were making a, a regular trip. It was about half an hour out to the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. I think that was the Blue Ridge Mountains. And then a half and 15 minutes up and then 
15 minutes down or about 30 minutes up the mountain. Not all of it was straight up. But there were some pretty steep hills, some pretty deep curves. And it struck me a couple months in driving that road that I never saw police on those mountain roads. On the highways getting out to the mountains, sometimes I would. I never saw it on those mountain roads. And why was it? It's because those curves that have the yellow sign that say 15 miles an hour, they're self-regulated. If I want to speed through that curve, they might be sending a rescue squad up to me, but they're not going to send the police up to police that. It's a self-regulating problem, speeding on the mountain curves. That's what Paul is saying. This should be a self-regulating problem. If he's not going to eat, he's going to get hungry, and either he's going to starve to death or he's going to go work. But for whatever reason, in whatever way, there were those in the church who were able to go on like this, either because someone in the church was supporting them or they were able to find someone outside the church to loaf off of. So what are we aiming at here? We're really aiming at being a contributor rather than a consumer. We ought to obtain not to spend or to consume, but to help and to give one author I was reading really drew a lot of thoughts together about all the good things that God says about work and some perversions of that in in our culture where it's work is just kind of a necessary evil. I, I just have to do it so that I can maybe maintain my luxurious lifestyle or so that I can go play for the weekends. It's really denigrating work. But a Christian has so much more to that. Of course, enjoy the fruit of your labor. But it is clear elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 4, for someone who had been stealing, let him who stole, different situation, when he's a Christian, steal no more. Rather, let him labor with his hands so that he will have to give, to share with one in need. There's really a way of thinking here. We don't enable the lazy, the slothful, but we teach them to meet needs and to help others to do the same, working not to be a burden to others, but working so that they can do what God has given them to do. Idleness, it's a danger to the church. It rejects Christ. It rejects his appointed ones. It's disorderly. And if we see it in our midst, we should watch out for it and see that it gets corrected. But finally, Uh, Beyond being disobedient, it's just contrary to nature and contrary to God's intent for when he created us. Paul makes it clear in verse 11. We we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. There's a little bit of a play on words here. You could maybe translate it this way. Uh, capture the sense of it in in English this way, not busy, but busy bodies. So they're not using the energy God gave them to work. They're for, for, for what he created them to do. They're using it for something else. They are busy, but they're busy about the wrong things. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So what's the problem that's coming against what God has designed? Well, God gives work and energy for a reason. So these people wouldn't work. 
It's not that they couldn't in God's providence. God may do that for a time or for a long period of time. They had been addressed about this, but they had resisted it. Maybe they had an explanation that made sense to them. But Paul saw clearly that their lack of labor was unruliness. They were out of line. They were not contributing in the way that they should. And it opened them up to other disruptive behavior as well. They weren't busy with work, but they were busy. They were apparently making themselves a nuisance. Again, maybe they were going and finding someone in the marketplace and they were just kind of sitting around and, you know, I'm trying to evangelize people and do this and that. And you can just kind of imagine the kinds of things that they might say that they're up to, or I'm going to go counsel this person at their home. And they're just being disruptive. They're meddling. Idleness really is, it tends to be a gateway to other sins. Gossip. Mindless chatter. We really all need to keep away from idleness so that we stay away from these other temptations. Paul saw this as a danger for for widows when they are young, young widows, that the church not support them because they would be given over towards idleness and gossip. He said that they should rather marry, and the implication is be supported by a husband who works and keep home, work that way, so she doesn't become a gossip and a meddler. So that's the problem, but what is... Paul do, he really puts in mind God's intent for them. We order, he gives the law, but he also gives them an encouragement. Here's God's intent to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Work with quietness and eat the bread you earn by working. Work and quiet down, is what Paul is saying. You can almost say settle down. And sustain yourself. This this is a kind of attitude that's supposed to go with their work. Quietly earning a living and be content with what you have. It's really completely contrary to the, the, the fussy activity of always trying to make yourself available or be a nuisance or ask for something else or angle to get in the right place so that you have something to live off of. That's, there's never peace there. Paul is saying, settle down. Work quietly. Sustain yourself as God has given you the ability. There is a disciplining effect that calms a person down and ties them to a place and quiets them down. Maybe you could say from from dreaminess or busyness about things that don't concern them. Work has this effect. It keeps us from sin. And it's good. Work is good. And you could say Paul wants them to work, not just to settle down and support themselves and avoid sin and stop causing trouble, but also to have to give to others. That really is the heart of a Christian, to meet needs, to help the needy, to minister to others. So the point is, we ought to use our energy and capacity not to serve ourselves, not to live for ourselves. There are many people in our country who have been very successful as they have worked hard. And they deserve to enjoy the fruit of their labor. If someone comes and steals that, that is wrong. If the government comes and steals that, that is wrong. So we would not charge them with being idle. But if they made an idol 
of their hard work and the fruit of their labor without giving credit to God. Don't be in that category either. We ought to work to give, not just to have for ourselves. Yes, to support ourselves. Yes, we can enjoy the good things that God gives us. But if I could clarify even further, I would say that this isn't what I believe is an another idol, I-D-O-L, in our day, the idol of self-sufficiency. Paul is not saying, go work so that you can be independent from God. Because I do believe that's often what comes in our day, in our country. Paul is saying, support yourself. But of course, it's in the greater context of depending on God. We depend on God when we use the energy and the skills that he's given us to do a work that he's provided for us. That's the ordinary way that we earn a living, the ordinary means of God's provision for us. When you read Psalm 10, I believe it's 104, the, the eyes of all look to you to give them good in due time. And there's a description of how God gives water to the fields and man works the fields so that he has abundance from God. That's the ordinary way that God provides, the ordinary way that we depend on him. So I would just warn you of that idol of thinking that we can be totally self-sufficient without giving credit to God. That is not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, support yourself and depend on God for the ability and the work to do so. And if God's given you a work to do and ability to do it, it's, a, it's upon all of us to be content with that, isn't it? There are many people who have more. There are many things that we could look at and say, man, I wish I had that. If I only had that, my life would be easier. Watch out. Watch out. Covetousness is right near all of us, myself included. God commanded work. God himself is now working. Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all working. It's part of creation. It's a gift from God that we can grow and develop in our skills and really really make a contribution and help people. And of course, I referenced before, work is, is a major way that we can glorify God. There's no... There's no absolute distinction for a Christian between a secular job and a sacred job, okay? And understand what I'm saying. Every Christian can go to work tomorrow and do that with all their might for God's glory. And that is a sacred work. So go to it. A favorite word of some of the older writers I was reading this week was the word drone. And maybe you're familiar with that, but I had to I had to look that up. Why do they keep using this word? It really is just the word for idle, sloth. Don't be a drone Christian. If we can look to the ant, so a proverb says, look to the ant, O sluggard, and learn. Maybe we can look to the bees and learn. Because that word drone, I found, has to do with bees. And in every honeybee hive, there are three jobs to do, three kinds of bees. There's the queen bee. She lays all the eggs. There's the worker bees. They go pollinate, they go pollinate everything and work on keeping the, the hive and building and everything else. And then there's the drones. 
And unfortunately, guys, that's the males. If you know anything about uh, bees, I do not know very much about bees. I am not a beekeeper nor the son of a beekeeper. But the males are the drones. And their one job in God's creation, this is God's wisdom, their one job is to go at the time of year for mating and mate with the queen bee from another hive. And if they don't succeed, a queen bee from another hive evidently will mate with 12 to 20 or so bees and get all the, the uh, eggs or eggs that she needs for the rest of her life to, to lay eggs. But if they don't succeed, they go back to the hive and you know what they do? Nothing. They don't keep home. They don't pollinate. They're good for nothing. And you know what those worker bees do, those industrious worker bees? When the weather gets cold, they know that there's not enough food to go around, and so they kick them out, and they die. There's a lesson here for us, that he who does not work, he must not eat. So go to, can I say, the bee, O idol, and learn that God has made us to work. God didn't make, in his wisdom, he didn't make that drone bee to work, and that's his decision. But he did make us to work. And if God's given you the ability, whether that's at home, on the computer, or at the office, or in the shop, do it with all your might as unto him. And depend on him as you do it, because it's a good work that he's given to you to do. That's his provision and his goodness to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for reminders like this. Thank you for dignifying the work that you've given us to do, Lord, it really is part of your image in us that we work, that we can work. And Lord, we haven't tackled all the questions maybe that we could, because we know that in your providence, sometimes you put us in a season where we can't work or we don't work or we can't find a job for whatever reason. Lord, I pray if that's where you have someone today, I pray that you'd give them perseverance and encouragement and uh, just assurance of your provision for them and your wisdom in their lives. But Lord, as is typical, it seems, as you've created us, as men have done for generations to just work, I pray that you'd help us to do it with all our might. Help us to avoid laziness. Help us to avoid idleness at work and at home. And Lord, help us as we work to avoid men-pleasing. Help us to work as unto you and really have joy in the work that you've given us to do. Lord, if you've given us a job that we do just naturally enjoy and really gets us to work in the morning, we praise you for that. That really is a gift from you. If there's work that we do that you give us to do that we don't enjoy so much or we could do without or maybe is boring, I pray that you'd help us to rejoice in you and your provision to us and do it still with all of our might. We thank you for your, your providence in our lives. We ask that you would meet our needs. We depend on you for that. Every good thing in our lives that we have is from you. We look to you and we confess that you have met all of our needs all our life long. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for loving us and guiding us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.